Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So far the reading of our text. Brothers and sisters, it is October, and all of you know what that means. Hockey's back, right? This past week, I read an article about hope, and it reminded me of an old sports phrase uh, that really resonates with me being from Ontario, being a Leaf fan, all about hockey. The phrase on hope that I read began with this line, it's the hope that kills you. As a Leaf fan, that certainly resonates with me, and as Vancouver Canucks fans, even more with you, right? It's the hope that kills you. The article asks, sometimes, doesn't it seem it's just better to have low expectations, or just no expectations, rather than to build up a great hope, and then watch that hope be dashed before your eyes? Some people think that's true of sports teams. They don't want to get their hopes too high. But much more sadly, if you look into it, you'll see some people actually that to be a true motto for all of life. It's the hope that kills you. It's the hope that you build up that will always let you down and hurt you the most. That's why some people, even some great philosophers that I studied back in university, they actually argue that it's best to try in our life to forsake hope altogether. Don't try and get your expectations up because that's the most sure way to get hurt. And isn't that such a tragic thought? When we're hurting or when we're suffering, when a loved one is sick or passes away, is that the advice that we need? Just give up hope? Thankfully, that's not the hope that Christ gives us. In his word, he never tells us to give up hope. In fact, he tells us what we really need. He tells us we need a better hope than this world can possibly offer. A lasting hope. Uh, Thankfully, that's exactly what Christ himself gives us. He tells us never to abandon hope. Instead, he says in our passage today to hold on to a better hope. 
bought by his own blood. That's what our text is all about, our unwavering hope in Jesus Christ. And we'll explore this hope in two parts this afternoon. First, we'll see hope in glory, and secondly, hope in suffering. So first of all, hope in glory. The reason why the Bible can give us real hope when all of the others lose hope, and they say to just give up and forsake any, any real hope of finding hope, is because those who say to give up uh, any high expectations you might have for our future, they say give up any dissatisfaction with the world and longing for something better, is because they think this dissatisfaction with the world is wrong-headed. They think it's naive. And they want to insist, nothing better is coming. So why bother to hope? But the Bible says, no. The Bible says our dissatisfaction with the world and our longing for something better is actually absolutely right. And for those who are in Christ, we're told, Something better is absolutely coming. Verse 2 of our text tells us that what we really hope and long for ultimately is the glory of God. And this glory of God, it's a really loaded term. It actually refers to three related but sort of distinct things. At the beginning in the Garden of Eden, Eden rather, Adam and Eve, they knew God's glory. First of all, they walked and they talked with God in the garden. This is what they were created to do. They knew God's glory. Secondly, they saw God's perfect, unpolluted, very good creation. And as we read in Psalm 19, creation itself declares the glory of God. And finally, thirdly, Adam and Eve knew God's glory because in a sense, Adam and Eve as human beings, as the pinnacle of God's creation, they were God's glory. We read in 1 Corinthians that not only did uh, man know God's glory, but man was God's glory. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 7 says that man is the image and glory of God. And the reason we have a dissatisfaction and longing in our hearts, a deep sense the world is wrong, and this isn't all creation has to offer, is because through the fall, we lost this all. We lost the glory of God. We were cast out from the garden. And later on, Moses, he asks if he might see God's glory, what we were created to see. And what does God say to Moses? He says, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. You can only see my back when my glory passes you by. Moses longs for God's glory once again but he cannot have it. God's glory in creation, too, is veiled. Paul tells us in the beginning of Romans that we human beings, when we rejected God, we exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and creeping things. And as for us, ones made in God's image, Paul says in Romans chapter 3, each of us, we have fallen short of the glory of God. Isn't that a painful thought? It's hard to think of the nature of our God and what we were created to be in his image and to measure that up with what we are today and see how far short we've fallen of what we were made to be. And that is why we deal with pain 
and suffering and dissatisfaction in this world. Of course, we can see a little of God's glory now, dimly as in a mirror, but it's not what we want, not what we need, and not what we were created for. And so we hope for and we long for more. And brothers and sisters, our hope isn't in vain, and it's not naive. The glorious God who we knew and who created us, he promised us, right after the fall into sin, a sure hope. He promised a savior to crush the head of the serpent and bring us back to God. And as Paul has spent the whole beginning of Romans writing, this savior, our hope, has come into the world with glory. By faith in Jesus Christ, the promised Savior in this world of suffering and futility, look what Paul says in verse 1. Now all who believe in Jesus Christ, he says, have peace with God. That is an amazing statement. As we listen to the news, we hear about wars and we think of peace as what? Primarily just the absence of fighting. People can just put down their weapons for a minute. That's not the peace at all that Paul is speaking about here. Peace is talking about, maybe it's helpful to imagine what a home or a family full of peace would look like. A true peace, shalom it is in the Hebrew. What would a peaceful family or a peaceful home look like? Would it be one where people are tolerating each other and just not hurting each other, not yelling at one another? Of course not. So much more than that. A peaceful home is a place where you can go to be built up. When you're suffering or hurting, you can go to be encouraged. Where you go and find love and compassion and help in your time of need. Well, Paul tells us here that we have peace with God. Even in this exhausting, sin-filled world that falls so short of what it was meant to be, even while we fall so short of what we were created to be, we have peace with God. And that's not just that God doesn't lash out against us. He's just holding it back. He's just tolerating us. It means we have a flourishing relationship with God. He loves us and he cares for us already now. In verse 2, Paul tells us, through Jesus Christ, the promised Savior, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Many commentators explain that having access to God is actually a technical term. You have to think about it this way. Imagine you really wanted to get into the palace. You really wanted to go see the king. There's no way you're getting in, right? Why would the king ever want to see you or me? We're just unworthy, you could say. But this technical term for access, it means someone who is worthy. They seek you out. They come alongside you. They prepare you. And they bring you in before the king. And of course, the people who Paul's writing to, the believers, they're not thinking of just an earthly king. They're thinking of the divine king. The king over the earth and the whole universe. And the one who gives us access is that king's own son, Jesus Christ. He comes alongside us and brings us into God's presence. And there, Paul says, we stand. We don't kneel or bow or grovel before the king. We stand there. We heard last week about how the call now in Christ is drawn near. When previously the call was always stay back, not too close. 
And we stand there already now, Paul says, having an unwavering hope, hope of the glory of God. We have hope that we have been redeemed and that we shall be restored to what we were created to be. That's our hope. For now, we still can't see God's glory fully, but the Holy Spirit helps illuminate the scriptures and we can begin to see. And we know someday we will see. In creation and in us, and even face to face, we will see God's glory once again. We will truly see God. Can we even begin to imagine what that would look like to see God as he is, face to face, to see God's radiant goodness, to see his perfect holiness, to see his amazing justice, and his awesome self-sacrificial love for people like us. What does that even mean, to see God? We're going to find out. Can you imagine seeing God's glory perfectly declared, shouted in creation? I think already now, especially since I've moved to BC, I've seen some, a little bit, of God's glory declared in creation. Can you imagine when this world is restored and made new, when our eyes are restored and made new, and we will see God's glory shouted in creation? And can you imagine when we too are restored to God's glory? What we were created to be, not just seeing how good and great and pure God is, but being pure ourselves, having this relationship, the glory of God. Paul says, this is our hope. And what a hope it is. For now, we can only imagine or begin to imagine what this might look like, but we won't have to imagine for long. That is what Christ came to do. And God tells us himself in 1 John chapter 3, we know that when Christ appears, we will be like him and we shall see him as he is. Paul says we hope in the glory of God once again. This isn't the best that's yet to come. Those who say simply to give up hope are absolutely dead wrong. The truth the Bible proclaims so boldly is we were created for so much more, and if we try and give up hope and just be satisfied here, it will never work. We have much more to hope for, and Christ is the one who came to get us there. The old things and the painful things of this life, sickness and disease and suffering and death and disappointment, these things, Revelation tells us, will pass away and be no more. And yet the good things, the best things that we've experienced in this life, we know these are only a tiny foretaste of what God has in store for those who love him. That is our true, genuine, unwavering hope. Far greater than a hope in the Toronto Maple Leafs. Not worthy at all of even the same word of that kind of a hope. Not some sort of a hope of, oh boy, I sure hope this happens. Our hope is assurance, knowing I can get through this now because Christ is with me and I know what comes next. I love how the Hope Explored course defines Christian hope. Our hope is a joyful, assured expectation for the future based on true events in the past, which changes everything about our present. Tim Keller explains this same hope very well. He says to think of it this way, with this really simple analogy. 
Think of two people living and working in the same fallen world. These people go to work in a factory every day in awful conditions. They do tough, exhausting work for 80 hours per week. The only difference between these two people is this. One of these two people tries to find joy just in their work. They expect a low, meager wage after each day of back-breaking labor. The other, on the other hand, has been promised that their boss cares for them. After their work is done, they'll receive millions of dollars and be handsomely rewarded far beyond what all their tiring work deserves and for all that they've accomplished. As Tim Keller explains, the circumstances in the presence are essentially exactly the same. Yet one of them will trudge to work each day. They might even be tempted to give up. The other will come to work with their heads held high. They'll greet their fellow workers. Sometimes, sometimes, they might even whistle while they do their back-breaking work. The circumstances are the same. The work is the same. The only difference is hope. As Christians, we have this hope, this confident expectation of an amazing, undeserved reward and restoration, the hope of the glory of God. And how do we have this sure hope? I love how Sinclair Ferguson explains it. We have this sure hope of glory because the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity in heaven above, looked down on us in our suffering. And what did he do? He lay his own glory aside. Why would he lay his glory aside? To bring glory to his heavenly Father. And as we read in Hebrews 2, to bring many sons and daughters to glory. We read in his high priestly prayer right before he was betrayed, right before he went on to suffer and to die in our place. His prayer was that the disciples and all who believe through them, that's you and me, might see his glory once again. If Jesus Christ himself lay his glory aside, humbled himself to the point of a servant, and came down to suffer and to die, humbling himself to be beaten and spit on and stripped naked and left on the cross to bring us glory, then we can rejoice in an unwavering hope. Surely we will be with him in glory. This means already now we can have an unwavering hope also in our suffering. That's our second and our final point. Tim Keller's point in explaining one worker without hope and the other worker with hope is to explain the fact that we have unwavering hope for the future that radically changes how we live already now in the present. And we can see this in verse 3 of our text. Because of our hope in the glory of God, Paul says, we rejoice. They can mean exult or even boast. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And we need to realize what a radical statement this is. In, in general, what is the biggest threat to any hope that we have? Any hope for the future we hold on to? It's suffering. It can also be translated pressure. If we long for a happy, healthy life, or we long for our sports team to do well, or we, we hope for uh, anything else, what can crush our earthly hope is pressure. It's pushback. It's suffering. 
And that's when our hope begins to hurt. And when sports fans like me and philosophers say, it's better to have no hope at all than to have hope that's slowly and painfully twisted. Hope that's pried out of our hands. Hope that's crushed under pressure. But Paul says something amazing here about our hope in Christ. In suffering and pressure, our hope can actually flourish. Our hope can actually grow. And we need to realize Paul is not saying this lightly. Some commentaries, some things that I've listened to, they have seemed to minimize what Paul is saying here. But the Bible never minimizes our pain and suffering in this world, does it? Just look, for instance, at the book of Psalms. A book that God gave us in part to help voice our suffering and our trials and our troubles. A book that also helps us to understand Jesus Christ's sufferings and temptations and trials. Paul, likewise, the author of this letter to Romans, if you know anything about his life, he suffered tremendously. He was scorned and he was mocked. He was beaten with rods. He was pelted with stones. He was imprisoned. And likewise, the Romans that Paul is writing to, they were likely living under the rule of the emperor Nero. In a matter of years, Nero would begin to have Christians killed for entertainment used even for torches at his dinner parties. Paul isn't minimizing his own suffering. He's not minimizing the Roman suffering. He's not minimizing our suffering either. Paul knows how radical what he's saying is. The Bible radically acknowledges the pain of sin and suffering and death in this fallen rule. Yet Paul says, as huge and painful and seemingly overwhelming our suffering, yet we can exult in the midst of it, Because our hope is even greater. Our hope is even more powerful. It's even stronger. Many commentators compare this to a professional athlete. You can watch the Olympics and you you can wonder how these people can possibly run so fast. How they can jump so high. How they can stand under so much weight without being crushed. And we know why. It's because these athletes suffered. They trained And through the pain, they grew. Likewise, Paul is saying, as we go through pain and pressure, we find our hope, Jesus Christ, holds strong. In fact, by God's grace, in suffering, God can make our hope in Christ stronger. And the suffering, Paul says, produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces more hope. Hope that endures through the suffering and looks forward to the promised glory far beyond the suffering. And that hope, Paul assures us, will never put us to shame. And why? We need to look at verse 5. He tells us why it will never put us to shame. It's a remarkable promise in verse 5 that is often overlooked. Paul says, Our hope will never put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What a verse. God has immense love for me and for you and for all who believe in Christ. And what we see in this verse is God wants us to know his immense love for us. He wants us to feel it and believe it and rejoice in it, even already now in this life of suffering, while glory still seems so far off. You know, sometimes when you you really love someone, when you really love your spouse or your parents or your kids, sometimes, at least if you're anything like me, 
Sometimes you just get an overwhelming urge. You want to express to them how much you love them, but you can't do that. We get here in this text that God wants us to know how much he loves us. And so he's poured out his love into our hearts so we can receive it and believe it. And by God's grace, he's given us the Holy Spirit so we can begin to experience it already now. And what kind of love does God have for us? How much love is God trying to cram into our hearts? That's what the rest of our passage goes on to explain. And if you'll pay attention to the news or you pay attention to social media, sometimes a, a heroic, a heartwarming story will pop up, even in the midst of all of the other terrible stories of pain and suffering. So for example, a number of years ago in Alberta, uh, a six-year-old boy ran out onto a frozen lake. Uh, it was early in the winter, and so the ice began to break underneath him. His father, from a ways off, he saw what was, what was happening. And so he yelled for help, and he ran after him as fast as he could. He jumped onto the ice, and the man managed to grab his son, spin around, and push him into the arms of other rescuers, saving the child's life. Unfortunately, the man himself couldn't get out until it was too late but I'm sure that was a trade he was happy to make. That's exactly what he was trying to do, to save his boy. And these stories touch our hearts when we think of that kind of amazing, self-sacrificial love. Well, in this passage, Paul wants us to think of this kind of self-sacrificial love, and he tells us something amazing. God's love for you is like this, but even greater. In verse 7, Paul says, one will scarcely, so on occasion, they will die for a, rare, a righteous person. Or perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. By nature, Paul says, we were weak and ungodly and sinners and enemies. Those are the things he mentions of us in his text. The point he's driving home is clear. By nature, having fallen into sin, we were hopeless. And that is when Christ lay his glory aside. That is when Christ gave his life that you might live, that you might have hope for all time. And that is why we have unwavering hope. If that's what God did for us when we were enemies, rebels who deserved the least, well, that's when he gave us the best, his very self. How much more can we trust that God will work for us and protect us now that we are his children? Now that Christ has brought us into his throne room, into his presence, where we stand as beloved sons and daughters. Surely we'll be saved from the wrath of God against sin, Paul says, now and forever. And surely already now, God will equip us to live through suffering with his unwavering hope. In fact, it's here that we see how truly powerful our hope really is. I love how Tim Keller notes it. He asks, who of God's children has suffered the most in the world? And the answer is for us. He said the one who suffered the most was Jesus Christ himself. In our time of need, we can look to Jesus Christ and we can see the one who suffered the most and the one who had hope that was the strongest. During Christ's suffering, he endured by his unwavering hope that he had. His hope wasn't like the world's hope. It wasn't just a strong desire or a baseless optimism. His hope was unwavering. 
In the garden of Gethsemane, when he was in agony, when he fell to his knees, his sweat dropping like blood, he had a hope that held strong, a hope that could propel him forward, a hope through the most unbearable suffering of being, while being nailed to a cross and having the wrath of God that we deserved poured out on him. Because the hope that Jesus Christ held to was that by his death, by his suffering, we would have this love of God poured into our hearts while the wrath that we deserved was poured onto him instead. We read in Hebrews chapter 12 that Christ, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so the author of Hebrews tells us, consider him. Remember that word from last week, consider, reflect on him, meditate on him. Meditate on him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Christ entered into this world of suffering and death and he did so willingly, knowing with certainty that once he endured on our behalf, your glory and mine was assured. And now in his death and resurrection, as we read together in 1 Peter 1, Christ has, according to his great mercy, caused us to be born again to a living hope, that's an undying hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This past week, a pastor shared a story at the minister's conference I was at of a man who I believe lived according to this unwavering hope he had in Jesus Christ. You may have heard of him before. His name was John Payton. John Payton was gifted as a student already from a young age. And he was offered a generous scholarship to continue his studies. But after prayer and reflection, he turned it down. He only had one thing on his heart. He had a longing to be a missionary. He wanted to share the hope that he and his family had in Christ in a dark world that he saw was so full of suffering. And he felt called to go to this group of islands off the east coast of Australia, uh, where some other missionaries were trying to work. The first two missionaries to land there had actually been killed. They'd been brutally martyred by cannibals. Though many tried to convince John Payton, don't go there, anywhere but there. But he was sure the Lord was at work there. And in fact, that God wouldn't let the suffering of those first two martyrs go to waste. When an elderly man came up to him and urged him not to go on account of the cannibals, he answered him, If I can live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it makes no difference to me whether I am afterwards eaten by cannibals or by worms. On the great day, my resurrection body will rise just as fair as yours will in the glorious likeness of our risen Redeemer, Jesus Christ. So on the island, he and his family, they went and they suffered. They suffered sickness and death and opposition. But Peyton's hope was unwavering. Yet he said, come what may, the Lord Jesus will use us for his glory and for our own real good. And by God's grace, his work there was blessed. He started a church of about 40 natives. But eventually their church was attacked. One man eventually was fatally actually wounded. In his pain, he kept saying, as his pain got harsher, for Jesus' sake, for Jesus' sake, Eventually, he passed away, but until he did, he was constantly praying for his persecutors 
and begging the Lord not to abandon the island, but to claim the island for Jesus Christ. And biographers write that that man died in the assured hope of entering into the glory of his Lord. Eventually, the persecution got so severe that John Payton was driven away. And so they went to Australia, and they rested, and they restocked, and they re-recruited, and then they returned. Upon seeing that John Payton had returned, the natives said, we killed them, and we drove them all away. We plundered their houses. We robbed them. Had we been treated like that by any, anyone, nothing would have ever made us return. But they came back to tell us of their God and of his son, Jesus Christ. If their God makes them do all that for us, then we will worship him too. And by God's grace, much of the island came to have this hope in Jesus Christ. And many of them still do to this day. John Payton was sure his suffering would not be in vain, but God would use it. He was sure because Christ's suffering wasn't in vain. In Christ, he had an unwavering hope in his suffering and an unwavering hope in his ultimate glory in life and his death. So let's pray that we might hold fast to this living hope and always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks us to give a reason for the hope that we have. Amen.